0: I grew up in a small neighborhood in Victoria, uh, Gordon Head, which is just near UVic if you're familiar with the island. And I lived in the same house from age five to 20. And through that whole time, I had the same neighbor, Uncle Jim. And while it was clear there was a property line between our house And his, it was more porous than firm. I played in my backyard as much as I roamed throughout his yard and his perfectly groomed trees and bushes and hedges. And although he was a bachelor, Uncle Jim actually bought a trampoline for his extended family, but that I got to use pretty much any time I wanted to use it. Uh, And whenever I was playing outside, from a young age and even into my late teens, he'd always say, how's it going over there, sunny boy? And even when I put a stick inside his air conditioner unit to see what would happen, he was still gentle, although firm, in his correction. And I don't know how, but my parents persuaded him one year, actually several years, to dress up as Santa for our Christmas parties. See, Uncle Jim was an incredible neighbor. And I know that his hospitality toward us extended well beyond uh, welcoming little children into his yard. He often helped my parents in matters big, and small. He was the exact kind of person you would want as a neighbor. I only wish this was true of all neighbors. I have extended family who owned a business that shared a driveway with another business, and both are small family run operations. They're neighbors, but they couldn't agree over who owned the driveway. And so the other neighbors took them to court over a series of five years that ended in nothing but financial hardship and strife for both of them because they couldn't agree who owned the driveway. The world recently has been re with Fred Rogers, which I think is good news. He's the paradigm of neighborliness. And I'm sure you have your own examples of good neighbors and bad neighbors, your own beloved neighbor, and those who seem to be the antithesis of a neighbor. And one thread is woven all throughout Scripture from beginning to end. It's a simple and yet not so simple command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It first appears in Leviticus. Jesus restates it as the second greatest command next to loving God. And it's a command we too love to quote. We love to say, love your neighbor as yourself, but it's much, much more difficult to put into practice, isn't it? Our passage in Ecclesiastes today reflects on this struggle. The preacher considers the toil we face as we try to live life in this world with neighbors in relationships that don't always go according to plan. And so there's two paths he looks at. There's the way of the anti-neighbor, and there's the way of the true neighbor. And so let's begin with the path of the anti-neighbor. If you have a Bible, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and the chapter begins with these words. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The dead are more fortunate than the living and it's better yet to have never been born at all. This is not how we're used to scripture speaking, is it? This lighthearted thought, sponsored by Ecclesiastes, is the preacher's response to one thing oppression. So, the first thing to note about the anti neighbor way is that it creates an environment that is rife with oppression. You know, consider how Saudi Arabia has oppressed Yemen and inflamed an atrocious human rights uh, situation and forced the starvation of millions of children. Or we can look closer to home, the experience of oppression abounding within our indigenous neighbors' lives while the government continues to pay lip service to reconciliation. Or we can turn to multinational corporations and their use of foreign workers to profit immensely, especially the fast fashion industry. But household names like Coca-Cola and Nestle and Pfizer are just as bad. They have awful histories of oppression, inhumane working conditions, abusing the environment, and profiteering off the vulnerable. We know of oppression all too well, but it's a mistake To think that oppression is only the tool of dictators and governments or CEOs and corporations. Scripture actually highlights how oppression starts on a smaller scale. It can happen in everyday life between neighbors. Oppression in scripture includes cheating your neighbor of something or defrauding them, or robbing them, or making unjust gain and profiting from loans. Oppression can be as simple as using what little power you have to fight for your neighbor's driveway. So on a big or small scale in scripture, oppression is quite basic. It is a failure to love our neighbors. That's where it comes from. And the preacher wants us to stop. Stop and consider just how grievous oppression is, big and small. Feel its weight and its burden. Because if you do, if you're honest, you can only stay there so long. You can only care about the cause for so long before your heart hurts too much and you have to look away. And the preacher keeps looking at oppression and he says it's better People weren't even born, because for an unacceptably large portion of the world, oppression is all they've ever known. Between life and death, they lived under oppression, and the preacher says this is grievous. But it's the heart of the anti-neighbor that's the problem. It's the heart of the oppressor that creates this sort of world. The preacher points out that the human heart is envious. He goes on to say in verse 4, Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Envy. Envy has long been identified as one of the deadly sins and for good reason. You know, consider this old saying, any friend can share your sorrow and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. Socrates put it like this, the envious person grows lean with the fatness of their neighbor. And the more modern philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell said that envy is one of the most potent causes of unhappiness. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be embedded in the Hebraic worldview to know that envy is bad for us as humans. And opportunities for envy abound everywhere. You know, how someone looks, how someone gets to live, who they get to be with, what they get to do, where they get to travel, they can stir envy within us. This past week, I learned of a new phenomenon called hate-liking. Where you like someone's post on social media, but you do it out of spite and resentment for their beauty or their good fortune or whatever. Like, I hate you and I hate what you have. Like, I can't wrap my head around this. The hate like is a widget of envy. If you take anything away this morning, there you go, there's my one line. Envy turns us in on ourselves so that we ask questions like, why don't I have what they have? Why do they get to have that, but I don't? I deserve it too or even further. They shouldn't have it. I should. You see, envy stirs on these longings and desires and builds a false sense of injustice. That we don't feel as blessed or as fortunate. And then it builds up pride because we think we should be as blessed or as fortunate. And so envy robs us of contentment. It robs us of peace. It robs us of joy. And envy creates distance between us and our neighbors. It separates, it pulls us apart. Because when we envy our neighbors, they're actually no longer neighbors. When we envy someone, they actually become a point of comparison. They are objects representing what we want to have or think we should have, but they're no longer neighbors. See, the heart of envy turns our neighbors into competitors or antagonists. It turns them into other rather than neighbor. And the preacher points out it's envy that's often the fuel of oppression. Because in pursuing envy of the neighbor above us, so very often we step on the head of the neighbor below us. You see, the envious heart has no problem trampling over others to get what they want to attain or what they desire or what they feel they should have. And so the preacher is pointing out that envy epitomizes the way of the anti-neighbor. And we have to take stock because he pushes us. He says, all of your work, all of your skill is actually driven by envy. Now, it's an overstatement, I know. But if you're honest, if you look closely at why you build skill, how you compare yourself to others, how you motivate yourself to grow, it is often in reference to someone else or some skill you wish you had for yourself. Envy is rife within us. And so I want to point out one other thing of the anti-neighbor world. It's fiercely independent. It breeds a lifestyle of... Hyper-independence. Look at verses 5 and 6. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. And a striving after wind. So in considering independence as an outcome of an anti-neighbor life, the preacher begins with the fool. Or as I prefer the translations that put it this way, the sluggard. The sluggard, no one wants to be a sluggard any more than they want to be a fool. I just think sluggard's fun to say, so I'm going to use sluggard. The sluggard, don't be a sluggard. This is the person who keeps to themselves and does nothing. You know, they fold their hands and eat their own flesh. It's a very disturbing image. You know, it's the choice to be idle in life, to do nothing, to disengage from community And to embrace a form of self-consumption. You know, rather than embracing life and giving themselves to others, the sluggard gives themselves only to themselves. So in the end, when all is gone, all they have left is themselves. They cut themselves off from community and from neighbors, and they end up with nothing. And when they run out of resources, rather than turn to others for help, they're left with consuming themselves to their own destruction, they give up and they refuse to depend on a neighbor. And they refuse to be a neighbor. Do any of you identify with the sluggard in extreme or subtle forms, a proclivity to withdraw, to be independent, to take care of yourself, to refuse help? To never admit need. Now, on the other hand, there, there's the striver. The opposite of the slugger is the, the slugger. Sluggard, is the striver. You know, the striver is the one who is manically busy, who relentlessly seeks to attain things and goals and experiences. The striver is the kind of person running from the next thing to the next thing, the next accomplishment, the next desire, the next trip, the next thing that has to be added to their lives while always masking a dissatisfaction for life, believing that tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow they will attain. There's another word for striver. It's called alistair. I fall into this category. I'm currently raising a family, leading a church, finishing up a doctorate, publishing a book, and among other things. And our culture celebrates this sort of thing, but the preacher does not. Don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to be an Enneagram three wing four, if that means anything to you. It's not wrong to achieve things. But the preacher wants us to look at our heart. What are you actually striving for? What are you going after? You see, the striver, myself included, typically thinks tomorrow will be better than today because tomorrow will have achieved something new. Tomorrow will tick off something else on our to-do list, whether it's cleaning our home or running errands, whether it's uh, getting a dream home or job or finding that right person Tomorrow, whatever it may be, will be better than today, so long as I strive for it. The commentator David Gibson puts it this way. The preacher's point is that to live this way is like shooting yourself in one foot so that you can hop more quickly on the other. Tomorrow's promotion will bring more pressure. The higher degree will just teach you how little you know. The marriage will connect you to another sinner for life. And the deadline will pass only for another to come racing toward you. Striving is anti-neighbor. Striving is anti-neighbor. Because in all of our efforts to achieve, we start using people as points of leverage, means to an end, rather than people to be loved, to journey with, to support. And striving is still a form of independence because we're striving after our own desires, even if they're good things. Even if you're trying to serve the poor, you're still striving after something for the sake of your own satisfaction. We're trying to fill something when we strive. Do you identify with the striver? I think our cultural moment, most of us probably err toward the striver than the sluggard. But whether you're the striver or whether you're the sluggard, they both end up in the same place. Both extremes fail to love their neighbor as themselves. They fail to give and receive love from their neighbors. The the sluggard separates from others, and in the end, the striver uses others, but they both end up isolated. The preacher makes this point with another illustration in verses 7 through 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his, rich, his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. The preacher is saying, Imagine the person who does it all and ends up alone, unable to enjoy what they have. Imagine Ebenezer Scrooge without the redemption arc. Imagine the person who's wealthy beyond your wildest dreams, who can have any and every experience, but can't seem to stop and actually enjoy what they have, because if they did, they would realize they are utterly alone. This is the person, Jesus says, has gained the whole world but forfeited their soul. The person who never stopped and asked why. Why am I embracing this form of independence? What is it leading to? What will it ultimately accomplish? Will it actually satisfy? So, if you're paying attention, we live in a world where it's normal to be anti-neighbor. Oppression abounds. Envy is rife in our hearts. And it breeds hyper-independence. On the one hand, we can become sluggards. On the other, strivers. And then, we're isolated and dissatisfaction sets in. How are you feeling? Where are you landing in this? Do you see it as true of the world and yourself? Fortunately, it is at this point that the preacher changes gears. He stops dwelling on the world of the anti-neighbor and looks at a picture of what it really means to be a neighbor. So let's consider uh, the beloved neighbor now. The preacher writes in verses uh, 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, if you've heard this passage before, I suspect you heard it where? At a wedding. It's a compelling vision of what interdependence can be and what commitment can look like. And that metaphor that preachers, I think, stretch out of, it's great that the two are becoming one, but better is three if you build your marriage on Christ. And this is a beautiful image of of what marriage can be. You know, about a decade ago, I got to travel through Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. And early one morning at 2 a.m., we got up to hike up Mount Sinai on camels, Mine was named Whiskey and Julia's Champagne because why not name camels after alcohol? And uh, by the time we got to the top of the mountain, we got there in time to watch the sun rise. And we stood where Moses stood approximately. And we watched the sunrise. And as we did, people started singing. And it was the hymn, uh, Be Thou My Vision. But it started off in Korean and then... There was a, a group of Spanish people speaking, singing in Spanish, and then we joined in English. And here we are on Mount Sinai, worshiping God, singing in multiple language. It was one of those spiritual moments. You know, I had shivers running down my spine. But it turned out the shivers were more ordinary than unordinary, because I met a friend on the mountain. His name Montezuma. And his agenda, revenge. Yes, on the top of Mount Sinai, one of the most sacred sites of the whole world, I had Montezuma's revenge. And the hike back down was brutal. Because you can't take the camels back down. It's too steep. So you actually have to hike down. But I was completely weak and dehydrated. My blood pressure went out. And I had to put my entire weight upon my wife, Julia, for the three-hour hike Back down Now, if you know Julia, you know she is literally, like literally half my size in body mass and head size. And <laughs> she bore my weight all the way down the mountain. You know, I was falling and she kept me up. I was shivering. She kept me warm. Two are better than one. But the imagery the preacher uses here should not be used exclusively for marriages. Because I actually don't think this passage is about marriage at all, although it gave me an opportunity to tell you a fun story. In this picture, we see two people embodying the command, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you commit to love one another, even in the toil of life, because this picture doesn't describe an idyllic Life, it describes a difficult life where two are supporting one another. When you commit to loving your neighbor under the sun, the preacher finally holds out some hope. You have a good reward. The preacher's honest. Loving your neighbor isn't easy, but it is rewarding. And what we see in these verses is the opposite, virtually the opposite of everything about the anti-neighbor World, When we act as beloved neighbors, you know, the environment isn't oppressive, it's supportive. You know, when we are loving our neighbors, the heart isn't envious, it's loving. The lifestyle isn't independent, it's interdependent. You know, the preacher holds up two people who are caught and bound together in one another's flourishing. They seek out one another's well-being. They lift one another up. They stay together through difficulty and even oppression. They give themselves to one another in loving support and interdependence. And if you look back at verse 6, this is the handful of quietness that is the middle road between the sluggard and the striver. The handful of quietness is a loving neighbor lifestyle, where you neither cease nor strive, but engage and love. This past week has been a very difficult week for my mental health, perhaps the lowest in years. And what blew me away this week and what was a sign of progressive healing in my own life was that my friends surrounded me that there was not a single day in which I wasn't was alone. There was not a single day in which someone did not reach out to me and ask me, "How, how are you today? What do you need? How can I support you? There was not a day that went by in which my friends in the form of loving their neighbor reached out to me and reminded me, I'm here. I'll stand with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm praying for you. They tried to encourage me. And although the light is yet to fully break through the clouds, I'm feeling at the moment, I know that even under the sun, in the toil, in the sense of hopelessness, I'm not alone. I have beloved neighbors. Life might still be difficult under the sun. The preacher isn't going to let us off the hook that easily. He says it is much more manageable. You have a greater reward when you go with your neighbor. But if we step back, the challenge for us is so often we fail to love our neighbor as we ought. We can get sucked up into the anti-neighbor environment around us that's oppressive, that's envious, that's fiercely independent. And, you know, we might have some healthy relationships and just as many unhealthy ones. And even the people we love the most, sometimes we just want to give up on them. So how do we embrace This vision of the beloved neighbor instead of falling by default into this world of the anti-neighbor. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus in the incarnation became a neighbor to us. Jesus became a neighbor to us. Jesus came into the world to befriend us, to neighbor us, to support us, to love us. He came into the world and walked among our neighborhoods, experienced the culture of the anti-neighbor, suffered under its oppression, came to liberate the oppressed, to speak peace to those whose hearts were full of envy, to show us the way of love. And he perfectly fulfilled the great command, love your neighbor as yourself. And in becoming our neighbor, in his dying and his rising, he's created the beloved community. He's created the church. And believe it or not, this is the antidote to oppression and envy and hyper-independence. The antidote to these things is a community where love of neighbor is practiced in Christ. Now, I know this sounds incredibly small. And simple compared to the huge problems we can see in the world. But it's profoundly true and it's profoundly powerful that although we are but like seeds in this world, this is where God brings about his work of renewal for the sake of the world. And I've watched people, people in our church, express to the world different ways of being a neighbor. About three years ago, a small group of people in our church partnered with some others outside of our church to sponsor a refugee family. You know, some took care of the legal work, others held fundraisers, and our whole church contributed as we were able. Together, we raised awareness, we prayed together, we offered up our nonprofit status so that we could give receipts to people giving money. And now, a Syrian refugee family has left. An oppressive environment to start a life here in in Vancouver. And although they're not plugged into our church, they continue to receive support and love from people who just see this as a basic outworking of love your neighbor as yourself. We might not be able to end oppression, but we can relieve it in small and significant ways. And I've watched our church be neighbors to one another, supporting one another through simple things like meal trains and visiting each other in the hospital, carrying each other's burdens, sharing in each other's grief. And I feel like I've said this a few times lately, but I'm going to keep beating this drum. Sometimes what is unordinary to the world around us has become ordinary to us. Some of us are so used to how things operate within the church, that we forget that it is completely bizarre to the watching world. It's unordinary. It's extraordinary. A community of strangers acting like family, loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another, offering their time to the world in love. It's completely unordinary, even though it begins to feel ordinary. And it's only possible because Jesus came to be a neighbor to us and continues to love us and model the way of how we can be a neighbor to others. So during this season of Lent, I think we have this profound opportunity to mourn over the ways in which we've been the anti-neighbor. To take stock of our lives and to sincerely ask ourselves, How have I failed to love my neighbor as myself? And if you want to know who your neighbor is, according to Jesus, it's everyone. Even your enemy. How have you failed to love your neighbor as yourself? And we can confess this in this season. We can own this in this season. And we can repent. And I want to remind you, repentance is not just feeling bad about bad things. Repentance is realigning our minds with the ways of Jesus. So rather than try to muster up guilt or shame for how we've fallen short of being a neighbor, instead we can ask the question, Jesus, how can I be a neighbor to my coworker, to my actual neighbor, to the people on the bus? What are you asking of me so that I can love others the way in which you've loved us all? And so we turn to the one who's the beloved neighbor. And he shows us how to walk out this path of loving others the way he calls us to. For those of us who are sluggards, the invitation is to turn to others for help. And to turn back to Jesus and ask him to help you turn toward community. For those of us who are strivers, the invitation is to lay down our striving to reconfigure it, to ask Jesus how he wants us to find that middle road, that handful of quietness where we embody the great command of loving our neighbors as ourselves. The preachers declared, the dead who are already dead are happier than the living, but better than both is the one who has never been born. But we can say better still are the dead who have died and been raised to life in Christ because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Better are those who live ceaselessly in the beloved community forever where oppression ceases, peace reigns for all eternity and a place where envy gives way to love, a place where independence is replaced by interdependence. And this reality to which we are all heading as the church can be experienced now, and we become signs of it to a world that is aching and longing for this sort of neighborly love. So may we love our neighbors as ourselves. And this Lenten journey, may the Lord guide us and show us how to actually live that out in the small and simple day-to-day matters of life.